the reality of supply chains, Clay, just like you were saying, is that there's a super huge amount of commingling that happens. And so, you know, ultimately, traceability to the end buyer, some people have been thinking about it in terms of, okay, well, what we need to do is, you know, we need to segregate, we need to somehow put all of the best beans in this bucket and deliver them to the buyer. But that's hugely inefficient in really large, really efficient agricultural regions. So, you know, what would bring that kind of transparency to origin would be parallel systems that enable you to commingle your agricultural commodities while at the same time maintaining visibility as to the origins. Welcome to Fall Line Field Notes, a podcast that explores the intersection of technology with agriculture and food. We're your hosts, Eric O'Brien and Clay Mitchell. Our inaugural podcast guest, Julia Stellari, has quite a unique background. She was a Harvard undergrad in biology and earned her PhD in plant molecular biology at Cornell. She became an ag tech entrepreneur as founder of Ag Squared, a software company that helps farm businesses harness data for profitability and sustainability. And more recently, she spent six and a half years leading sustainable sourcing, digital and carbon solutions at Unilever, where she became a world expert on issues of sustainability, impact, and ESG. Today, as a director of Fallline Capital, she is driving best-in-class practices in Fallline's farms and technology companies in uncovering new investment opportunities across biotech and climate as they intersect agriculture. There are a lot of misconceptions about what ESG is about. In this interview, Julia gives us a primer on what it means from farms and startups all the way to the world's largest and most progressive CPG companies. We begin our interview with Julia defining some of the key pillars that successful companies establish before securing their early investors. So, you know, ESG stands for environment, social, and governance. And these are three pillars that are increasingly recognized as important risk mitigation measures that companies need to put in place in order to ensure their, maybe you would say, longevity and ability to address stakeholder concerns in the present and in the future. Whereas impact, we're thinking about going beyond the do no harm that your risk management layer, your ESG layer provides to doing good. But I would say that, you know, drawing a really hard distinction between ESG and impact, in my view, is maybe a bit of a misguided effort. And the reason is because ultimately, if you want to be able to tell a story of doing good, it's important to have managed your negatives and your risks in doing so. So for example, If you're creating a new food product and this food product is using soy, your risk mitigation measure around the soy might be to include the fact that you want to source soy that is not related to deforestation or land use change. If at the same time you want to tell a positive story about how that same food product has a lower greenhouse gas footprint, say compared to meat, let's say it's a you know a meat analog, right? If you're not addressing the origin of the materials, the commodities that go into your final product, you'll have a hard time telling the story of the positive impact of the greenhouse gas footprint for the simple reason that if you don't manage the deforestation risk, this ultimately will give you less of a positive impact than what you're looking for. So is it fair to say that ESG is sort of like table stakes? At some level, we've got to look at the environmental, social, and governance elements of a company's business or a set of activities and be clear that we are doing no harm in that regard. And that's the base foundation 
upon which you can then begin to look at what is sustainable, what is having positive impact? I think so. I think you're exactly correct. The one thing I would add is that this table stakes is on a table that is rising higher and higher and higher all the time. And so whereas, you know, taking the example of my previous role, it was enough at the beginning to say that your agricultural commodities were sustainably sourced and report on that as a percentage of what you buy. Today, the degree of transparency that is needed and the number of environmental impacts that you'd want to mitigate are actually much greater. So not only do you need to say it's sustainably sourced, but also talking about that it is free from land use change and or having a certain greenhouse gas footprint and so on. How well defined are some of these ESG criteria? We hear a lot about different organizations putting forward different procedures or processes for determining whether you're doing no harm. What are some of the major ones and how are people thinking about the different ways of evaluating ESG? So I would say today, it's still pretty open in terms of definition and there's a high risk of greenwashing that is associated with that. But it's getting tighter. You know, the EU is tightening its taxonomy to define what makes a sustainable investment. And that just means, you know, starting from the top, from the very flow of where the money's coming from and being able to call something sustainable or not is going to ripple all the way through the industry in time. And as you have, you know, major regulatory agencies like the SEC requiring greenhouse gas disclosures, that will also, for example, lead to a definition of how those greenhouse gases should be reported and what you can or cannot, what you must include, what you should include, what you can choose to leave out. And insofar as that gets more and more codified, then the definition of ESG becomes stronger. The risk there is that you end up in the lowest common denominator phenomenon where it becomes just whatever the least adept actor in that level of the industry is able to respond to or able to provide in terms of information or data or assurances. But that's where you have positive impact. So that becomes then the differentiator where you can say, yes, we report according to regulation, but here's also all the additional good that we're doing through these additional measures that we take. So that's a great jumping off point then to talk about how do you define sustainability? How do you define impact? How do those two things relate to one another? So, you know, I still like the Brundtland definition of sustainability. So the ability to keep doing something without having a negative impact on future generations. And positive impact, I would say, requires at a minimum that you're not rolling backwards on your sustainability. Otherwise, you're essentially treading water while sinking, right? In order to drive a positive impact, you need to have a strong foundation off of which you're building. And impact ultimately is the good that we want to see happen. And in the case of Fall Line, the good that we want to see happen through the management of the farms that we own and the good that we want to see happen through the investments that we make in our early stage ag tech companies. Julie, in your current role with us at Fall Line, there's an expansive approach to impact across both farmland and early stage technology companies. How do you think about the structure of impact differently in those two different asset classes? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's a question I particularly like because it allows me to touch on one of my favorite themes, which is materiality. You know, it being able to hone in on what are the material risks? What are those areas of 
potential to do harm that need to be covered off is quite a grounding principle that I like to use when I think about sustainability and impact. So for an early stage startup, it's of course quite difficult to address some of the material issues, just because sometimes you don't necessarily have the kind of leverage that you would like to have over how you presently do business. So just to give an example, perhaps renewable electricity is something that a company has an ambition around sourcing and using because maybe electricity is a big piece of the final greenhouse gas footprint of a product. But when you're early stage and maybe you're sharing lab space or in a co-working environment, your ability to actually you know, negotiate with the utility and choose to purchase renewable electricity, it just may not be there. But what's important, I believe, for early stage companies is for them to think about what will be the material risks that my stakeholders would expect me to be covering off in order to be able to make the positive claims that I want to make about my products. And this may be in the area of greenhouse gases. So both electricity used, but also, you know, renewable energy more generally, and the footprint of any ingredient or material that goes into a product. It could be around health and safety, or it could be around, you know, the governance and transparency that is needed to ensure proper operations within a company. So I think, you know, when looking at it for an early stage company, it's just important to take a long view and think about what should that company have on their mind to address for the future. On the farmland side of things, you know, in a certain sense, we have a pretty heavily regulated environment when it comes to environmental risks, when it comes to health and safety risks. That being said, you know, between the expectation and the practice, there can sometimes be gaps. And in that gap is really where I see the main ESG areas in terms of risk mitigation needing to take place. So are all best practices in terms of environmental management being followed? Is the right standard for health and safety being followed on a farm. I mean, we know that agriculture today remains one of the most dangerous industries for people to work in. And, you know, at Fall Line, we have a position to be in a position of leadership and ensure that our operations are done with the utmost care for health and safety and raise that and bring that to the forefront. And by addressing, you know, these sort of gross negative risks, it creates the foundation and the platform to do good. And over time, I think, you know, when we look at, for example, the management of greenhouse gases on a farm, what is today an opportunity for positive impact, so increasing greenhouse gas sequestration in the context of soil carbon or reducing your greenhouse gas footprint could in the future then become part of what is expected from a regulatory standpoint. On the farmland side, we're in the very early days of farmers being incentivized for sequestering carbon. And as we look at those programs that have been launched, they are entirely focused on additionality. One of the things that we observe from farming in different regions and looking at farmland around the United States and spending a lot of time on farmland around the world is that the GHG emissions from different regions are vastly different. One of the potential downsides of the way the current programs are set up is that a farmer who is farming in a region where there's a net positive impact of farming may not be able to access any incentives, whereas a farmer in the most destructive area making some slight improvement 
maybe you know paid and have commodity prices effectively higher. How do you see this evolving in the future? Do you think that absolute impact will get internalized into farm gate commodity value? And maybe before diving into an answer on that, let's define things a little more clearly for those not familiar with the term additionality. Clay, do you want to just define what we mean by additionality? Yeah. Additionality is the incremental change in emissions, in this case, by a change in practice. So the baseline is the existing practice before there is some change. So maybe an example there would be if we own a farm that is and has for decades now been using no-till practices, and we later learn that farmers are being rewarded for moving to no-till practices because when you stop tillage and move to a no-till system, you are preserving soil carbon. That farmer who makes the change from a destructive practice suddenly is in a position to get paid. But the farmer who's been doing it right for the last 20 or 30 years, he is not eligible. Is that a reasonable example of what you're trying to get at? So I always think about there being kind of a rolling forgiveness for a lot of environmental incentives that more than that, even just rewarding bad practices in a lot of cases, because uplift is higher from bad practices. So it's a super tricky question, because I think today, if you would, at least if you would survey the sort of corporate buyers of soil carbon credits, there is already the understanding that the risk is that we reward those who have done the worst and provide them an incentive. And we don't support those who have done good and are continuing to do good with any kind of, you know, sort of thank you for your good practice (laughs) type payment. But if you look at like how greenhouse gas accounting is constructed, I find it difficult to escape that you know, ultimately, when it comes to carbon sequestrations, you need to actually put the incentive where there is the greatest opportunity to sequester the most carbon. But this may not ultimately be in farmland in the grand scheme of things. Where I think that existing farm practice that is good farm practice will ultimately get recognized is when you begin to surface what is the greenhouse gas footprint of farms commodity production. So when you attach a greenhouse gas footprint to a bushel of corn or to a bushel of beans, that's where you would immediately see the sort of difference in practice between your best producers and those who are doing the poorest. I once saw, and I forget exactly what paper this is in, a comparison of dairy farmers, say between Sweden and the Netherlands, I think was the exact comparison. And what you saw was that there was far greater variability between farmers than between the national average of the two countries. So your best performing farmers in the Netherlands would far, far, far outperform the mean value of your Swedish dairy farmers. And so this actually gives me a lot of hope because as long as we keep moving our knowledge and our systems so that farmers move from good to better to best to exceptional, then you still have the opportunity to continue to drive down greenhouse gases. And it's pretty broad in terms of how much of an improvement we can make there. Now, Julie, one thing that this requires is good traceability. And, you know, we see that farmers, you know, are blending their crops across different fields and then deliver to co-ops where they get further commingled and they get commingled again at processors. What do you see as the current state of traceability? How has that changed in over your career 
and what's the future? So traceability is really one of my absolute favorite topics to think about because I find it to be so enabling for ultimately rewarding best practice and helping those that are struggling with best practice to adopt it. The reality of supply chains, Clay, just like you were saying, is that there's a super huge amount of commingling that happens. And so, you know, ultimately, traceability to the end buyer, some people have been thinking about it in terms of, okay, well, what we need to do is, you know, we need to segregate, we need to somehow put all of the best beans in this bucket and deliver them to the buyer. But that's hugely inefficient in really large, really efficient agricultural regions. So, you know, what would bring that kind of transparency to origin would be parallel systems that enable you to commingle your agricultural commodities while at the same time maintaining visibility as to the origins. And this is a project that I worked on while at Unilever. It recently became public. It was with a company called Green Token, which is a spin out of SAP. And the goal was to be able to trace palm oil to a number of origins in Indonesia. And that was using blockchain and a distributed ledger. And ultimately, I think these types of solutions integrated into large-scale ERP systems could give you that kind of visibility to your origin that enables the incentive to flow from the end of the supply chain where it hits the hands of the consumer who is preferring a product that comes with traceability, comes with visibility to origin and certain environmental impacts, all the way back down to the producer. So traceability is one challenge. And then the other challenge is uh, getting an accurate measure of what the impact of farming that particular bushel or bale of, of ag commodity is. I'm curious in your experience as you've gone out to farms around the world, what are some of the things that have surprised you that have been major impacts that haven't been captured in any of the digitization efforts that have happened to this point? Yeah, I have one striking example in mind you know, relating to farmer to farmer benchmarking. I guess what one would hope happens in supply chains is that those supply chains that are sitting within traceability programs or sitting within sustainable commodity programs have the opportunity for farmers to confront each other on their performance. But I saw that that actually rarely happened. So there wasn't really so much of a clear feedback mechanism by which you take a bunch of growers all participating in the same supply chain, round them up and share, you know, what are the averages? What is the best and the worst performing farmers? What's the spread? How many more plants per field is the best performing farmer putting into the field compared with the worst? And is that incremental planting density, is it really adding value from a yield standpoint? And we kind of think that this is happening, but in reality, it isn't, or at least not in the experiences that I had in working with different growers. Of course, there are exceptions, so I don't mean to paint it all with a super brushstroke, but a lot of good would come from a greater kind of benchmarking and opportunity for comparison within supply chains. So Clay, I'm really curious with you and as a farmer, could you ever see a scenario playing out where farmers are willing to share this level of data and to put themselves out there to be compared across other farmers in their region, across regions, across continents? Is that conceivable in our lifetime? No, it's a great question. I think certainly farmers who farm in areas where 
gets environmentally more difficult to farm sustainably would be resistant. That's natural. But farmers are competitive. They think about farming in a very competitive way. And their identity is tied to doing it well. Yeah, you know, I've been in meetings where folks have talked about societal evolution, like people don't want to farm. People go away from farming when they've got other opportunities. And I think people who don't farm really underappreciate how much people love farming and they want to do it well. And I think farmers, for the most part, do want to be compared. The challenge is that, you know, as we step on farms, we have a huge amount of things that we put effort into, all the subtleties around directing water flow across farms take a huge amount of effort. And the effects of this are not captured or comparable. So, you know, the challenge is that we've set up certain metrics and it's kind of like studying to master material versus studying for a test. The metrics are never perfect. There can be people who do well at the metrics, but do, do bad at farming. And, you know, I think farmers are, they want to see those metrics continue to improve. So a better and better measurement of the quality of their farming is getting recognized. And that's something we fundamentally believe in. You know, we've talked about that from the first days of the firm, that information will continue to improve. Yeah, I think you made a really interesting point and analogy there in thinking about studying for the test and getting a test score versus mastering the material. And I think that is something in this whole realm of talking about ESG and sustainability and impact. There is so much startup activity that we've seen about creating the numbers. And if we can just create the numbers, then we can market those numbers in the form of carbon credits. And we can create these wonderful exchanges where people can just feel warm and fuzzy because they paid X dollars a ton for a carbon credit that was measured by a company that is doing some sort of remote monitoring by satellite and then modeling a carbon impact due to a process that they believe they have observed happening on this farm from literally miles and miles, hundreds, thousands of miles away in outer space. So Julia, when we think about the reality of what can be measured, we think about all of these efforts today to create these metrics that people can feel warm and fuzzy about. And then we consider our knowledge of what's actually happening on the ground and how randomly different that is from what is being observed by these remote models. How do you think about bridging that gap? How does it actually get bridged if we think about, okay, 10 years from now, I think we all believe there will be a much better defined sort of deterministic carbon market for these sorts of things. But we've got to get there incrementally. Walk us through some of the increments practically that we begin to get there. Yeah. Oh, boy. That's a tough one. My hope is that the right level of analysis is applied at the right scale. Okay, so what do I mean by that? At any one individual farm, yeah, it's true. The greenhouse gas footprint could be wildly wrong if it is estimated. However, it's important to understand exactly how big some of these global supply chains are. So if you're a company at the very end of the chain, you might have a couple million farmers in your supply chain. And your supply chain might ultimately start with 10, 11, 12 million metric tons of raw materials. These are like really big numbers. And in those big numbers, my hope is that looked at at the right level of aggregation, you can take an average 
for a region or a population of growers. And that average could be, hopefully, reasonably correct such that you can, over time, see a trend with that average. The challenge there is that from that average, you still have to meter out the incentives to the individual producers who make up that average. And so there's a risk there that, you know, we get it wrong and they're landing in the wrong places and somebody who's going up is getting, not getting an incentive and somebody whose performance is going down wrongly got the incentive and so on. But over time, we should, or I'm optimistic that we will get better at it. And ultimately in the grand scheme of things, the direction of travel will be one that on average rewards those producers who are helping to drive the grass, you know, in the case of greenhouse gases, like down into the right. Yeah. So what I'm hearing from you triggers two sides of me. The economist in me feels like this resonates. It makes sense. You've got to get comfortable with the fact that we're trying to affect change on a broad scale. And if we look at this at a high enough level of aggregation, we're going to achieve the objective by putting the right incentives in place. But it also triggers, I don't know, the universal fairness side of me, which says that at the individual level, this could be grossly unfair. And so what I'm hearing is we need to basically put that fairness concern in check for the greater good at the outset so that we can just begin to turn the tide toward sort of the arc of truth being in the direction of better practices overall and creating incentives and rewards for, in general, better practices. And then as we make that incremental progress, as the tide shifts in that favor, then we can become more refined and then the right players will get rewarded and that fairness side will work itself out at the individual level over time. Is that a reasonable way to think about this? I think so, Eric. And at a 30,000 foot view, I think that that's correct. Of course, Pauline, you know, because we work closely with our farmers and on the land that we own, I think we have the ability to, you know, be closer to what is the true footprint or the true impact on any one individual field or in any one individual farm. What we can't control is how that might be perceived at the very end of the supply chain and what that farmer gets lumped in, you know, who that farmer gets lumped in with and how they are doing. But that was never going to be within our control anyway. So I would think that you're correct. Hopefully the arc of fairness in time over time turns in the direction that we would like it to turn, while at the same time we can certainly have our eye on best practice and on finding those technologies that help to drive the right behavior and the right performance. So Clay, on that note, we've talked at a relatively high level. I think it's important to drive some of these examples home or at least give folks some context for what is happening at the farm level and maybe thinking about as an individual farmer, can you monetize carbon today? Maybe worth mentioning a couple of the corporate programs that we are familiar with that we've seen our farmers work with. And maybe just, Clay, could you describe those and how they map to, I think, maybe our longer term view where these things need to go? Yeah, it's a challenge. You talk to a lot of peer farmers about this as well. Just had a peer group meeting yesterday where all the farmers just investigated all the current programs and had decided that the cost of any uplift was going to be much higher than the payment. So, you know, as we're growing corn, soybeans, rice, cotton, and other kind of major commodities, a lot of the, you know, top line revenues are falling between $500 and $1,000 an acre. 
most of these programs are paying around nine. Some of the top ones are paying out about $25 an acre, which is at this point a very small percentage of the overall budget. A lot of the farmers that I'm in peer group with are already doing the cover cropping, no-till kind of practices, very good rotations that make it hard to find additionality. And so a lot of changes that would be required to get those payments, the farmers expect would cost about $45. So you're saying that these payments of 9 to maybe $25 an acre require incremental changes, even if you're doing some of the main best practices around no-till, cover crops, et cetera? That's right, because that additionality is required. But one thing I would say is farmers think about changes in practices that have better impacts. They often have a pretty good idea of what the costs are, what the risks and costs, and incentives really do matter. You see areas that have had wide adoption of cover cropping have been driven by NRCS programs or private programs that have you know, matched what farmers expect those costs to be and have been very successful. Adoption will be very, very fast with those programs in place. The CSP program, I think, has been really successful in the United States. So, Julie, if we think about the motivators for changing of practices, changing of behaviors on farms to drive better accountability around greenhouse gas emissions, let's talk for a moment about the regulatory side of this, because I think we've talked about some of the economic incentives that are being put in place by companies because it fits with their business models. But if we look at, you talked about greenwashing, you alluded to other regulatory drivers. Can you comment a little bit more in detail on sort of the state of affairs from a regulatory perspective? And and maybe as part of that, do we ever imagine a carbon tax coming to bear? I do recognize and must speak here with humility that there are many people who, you know, have spent their professional lives thinking about carbon taxes. But I will say that if you take a step back and think about a little bit what's happening in Europe, Today, dairy farmers in the Netherlands and all farmers in the Netherlands are required to keep a very strict accounting of all of the nitrogen that is applied to their fields. And this is reported, it is calculated, it is divided into different categories and modes of nitrogen application, sources of nitrogen application, ultimately with the goal of protecting the waterways and minimizing runoff. This is happening irrespective of a carbon tax. And so, you know. The way I tend to look at it is to imagine a world where what would happen if farms today were seen as point source polluters and if the same kind of environmental management that we expect of a factory, which is you don't just discharge your waste willy-nilly into the environment, you can't let whatever go out of your smokestack, if we expected that same environmental management to be applied to the farm. Of course, a big variable here is weather, which is not inside the farmer's control, and which does have a really big impact on runoff, on greenhouse gases, and soil erosion and conservation. But at the same time, even taking weather aside, there is scope to improve what is done on farms and to prepare for a future where the basic kind of environmental pollutants of a farm could be put under regulation. And greenhouse gases, insofar as they are within the management scope of the farm, which I believe they are, could eventually follow within that scope of increased environmental regulation. 
Clay, don't you think that's the way it's going to go? Ultimately, we need to think about the farms that we own and manage as in the not too distant future, falling under these kinds of regulatory regimes. As farmers, it's important that we prepare for that type of regulation. And this is something Julie and I have talked about a bit. What are things that we start to measure differently that would be aligned with being regulated as point source polluters? And Julie, is that something you could comment on? Yeah, you know, I would say, for example, management of nitrogen runoff or of soil erosion, of your greenhouse gas footprint. These are today voluntary measures, but I believe that they would uncover or would fall within, I should say, what in the future might be a requirement. And if you look at where agriculture and other parts of the world is going, you know, you can see it moving in that direction. We have talked about a lot of sustainability-related topics here, and I think spent a fair amount of time on the greenhouse gas side of things. We haven't talked as much about a couple of other elements of sustainability and impact. And maybe, Julie, if you could comment on your thoughts with respect to water conservation, water pollution, those topics as they relate to ag, and then maybe some of the emerging trends around biodiversity and the increasing importance or visibility of that as a sustainability and impact issue? Sure. Well, I think it's no surprise, you know, water is essential for agriculture. It becomes a rate limiting element to an agricultural production system. So, you know, you can compensate for depleted soils with more nitrogen, but ultimately if the well runs dry, there will not be agriculture in that environment. And it's also limiting in terms of soil carbon sequestration. So it's hard to imagine being able to build soil carbon in environments that are very dry. And so, you know, what I believe we have an opportunity to work on is the actual productive efficiency in respect of water. And one would think that it's really clear and easy to measure, you know, how much do you produce per amount of water used? But it turns out that it's not actually as simple as it seems. And if you look at, you know, what maybe an end buyer at the supply chain might want, which is to know that farmers are making the right choices from a water use efficiency, and you work all the way back to the farm level, you say, okay, how do you get to that water use efficiency? There's so many variables and choices that go into that in the course of a farming season. What seed to plant, what variety, in what rotation, at what depth do you plant it, with what you know, inputs and using what practices? And you know, then when do you water it? If you're irrigating it, how do you apply the irrigation water? When do you choose to harvest it? All of this might ultimately measure into, let's say, a water use efficiency metric. So it's actually quite tricky. So unpacking and working on that, I think, is an area that we would want to see improved quite a lot. Another area that is emerging very strongly is biodiversity, which is historically not something that we think of a farmer necessarily managing, though it was always a part of my sustainable sourcing program in Unilever was the requirement that all farms that we work with should have a biodiversity action plan. And I think, you know, this already being in there a decade ago just showed that it was perhaps a bit ahead of its time, because right now there's definitely the recognition that farming being the dominant land use on the planet has to play a role in the management and improvement and conservation of existing habitat to preserve biodiversity. A long time ago, I worked at the New York Botanical Garden. And when we asked at the New York Botanical Garden whether we would ever produce a metric as to why biodiversity was important, 
the organization at the time, or at least how it was explained to me, was that it was a principled position that biodiversity was important because, and then full stop. And, you know, there's a piece of that that has always remained with me that makes me really excited to see that now there's so much attention being paid to biodiversity. Clay, I'm curious, in your experience as a farmer and a very high-performing farmer focused on really achieving the utmost in yields on your fields, how does this concept of biodiversity strike you? Is it conceivable for farmers to incorporate some element of biodiversity into a high-performing farming operation? I think certainly among all my peers who, who are at the top of their profession, there's a huge amount of attention given to the border areas around their fields. And this is some of the biggest potential negative effect of sloppy farming that a farmer can have because it's easy to have crop protection products drift over into border areas and then create selection pressures where they lower biodiversity or denude border areas. And those are critical not only for biodiversity, but also it's the filter between the farm and downstream water supplies that would capture any sediment or any chemical or fertilizer that would be coming off the farm. So this is something we pay a huge amount of attention to on our farm. Biodiversity in particular, I think, is something just really intuitive for people, but it's not part of our common language in terms of what are the metrics? How do we measure it? If we talk about scarcity, for people who focus on this, there are terms like range size scarcity, which is how big of an area is the particular you know, species of concern? What's the native habitat? And then scarcity in terms of density is a different measurement. And so as you're starting to quantify and look at your impact, there are these very different types of tools. And then are we valuing birds, mammals, and amphibians? Or is it all species? And I think it's exciting to see the way that technology is enabling us to kind of capture snapshots of what biodiversity is in an environment and then apply different metrics and see what kind of outcomes do we have. But Julia, can you talk for a moment about the way the sequencing technology is opening up the ability to really quantitatively measure what biodiversity is in a certain environment? Yeah, I think this is a huge, huge potential area for innovation and for technology to actually, as you say, Clay, make more visible what is otherwise actually quite difficult for someone who is not a specialist in the area to see. So some cool technology that I've seen involves taking water samples from you know streams or ponds that are adjacent to farmed land and sequencing it and using you know genomics to both identify the species but also quite interestingly to look at the sort of amount of DNA that is amplified from the sample to determine the relative abundance of one species versus another. And this is great because it's quite simple to take a water sample and then you let genomics to do the rest and give you back a picture of what is in your environment. So then you get a better sense of what it is that you have to preserve and how much diversity there is. But I've also seen, you know, more in a tropical forest context, concepts around listening for biodiversity. So using bioacoustics to understand, you know, what type of diversity there may be in a forest and decoding that kind of, you know, the song of the forest, so to speak, to determine species or at least genera of animals in the environment and maybe even frequency of occurrence in that particular region. So Julia, are there particular themes around technologies that make you most excited about 
startup opportunities as it relates to this theme that we've been talking about? Absolutely. And there are several. One, anything that enables farmers to improve their environmental management. So this is the performance of the farm in respect to lowering greenhouse gases or preserving and protecting biodiversity or improving the quality of or decreasing the amount of pollutants that may be leaching off a farm. So that general theme. And then second theme would be anything that enables the farmer to actively participate in adapting and mitigating climate change. So adapting to climate change, I would say technologies that improve a farm's ability to respond to changing weather conditions and mitigating climate change, anything that improves a farm's ability to contribute to the drawdown of greenhouse gases. One of the things that I really enjoy about visiting farms with you these days is that there's a 15-pound passenger along with us, your six-month-old son, Daniel. And I know previously in your career, you've also traveled and worked with very small children in tow. And that's a lot like our life as farmers, that it is a family activity. And I enjoy that it's been that way for you. I'm curious if it has any effect on, as you're on a farm, as you think about your job and impact, having the family in tow, kind of affects your perspective. Yeah, I would say it's definitely top of mind for me. You know, before I left for that trip that you're referring to, Clay, My daughter, who is nine, she said to me, you know, it's hard for me to see you go, but I know what you do is really important. So go knock them dead. And it's hard to put into words exactly what that feels like, but to be validated by your own children in terms of them seeing the importance of how I spend my time, even when it means spending time away from them is incredibly, I don't know, it gives me a lot of hope for the future. Because my hope is that in the end, however I've chosen to apply my energy can lead to some positive benefit for their generation principally. Great. Thank you. Well, I think we have come to the end of this first episode. Uh, Really appreciate your time, Julia. We couldn't be more excited to have you on the team. So with that, we just really uh, appreciate you all tuning in to the inaugural episode of Fall Line Field Notes. We'll look forward to coming back to you with some new episodes coming up here shortly. But thanks for your time, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fall Line Field Notes. We're your hosts, Eric O'Brien and Clay Mitchell. If you found this episode enlightening and worth your valuable time, please share the link at fall-line-capital.com slash fieldnotes. Share it with a colleague or anyone in your network who cares about agriculture and the future of our food system. 